Rise and Shine Pinchers. Welcome back to another episode of Just a Quick Pinch. I'm your host, Connie Wang. So today, you can tell the audio is a little bit off. Don't worry, the main episode is crystal clear, but it's a bit off because I'm recording on Christmas break. I hope you guys are having an awesome Christmas. Today's episode is with Coach Masha. You guys know her. She's my nervous system coach. And today, we get to hear the backstory about how Masha became Coach Masha. She shares the life-changing experience that really put her on the path that she is on now. And this episode is for anyone out there that's feeling a little lost, feeling like you're meant for something more, something else, but you don't know where to start this one is for you okay so i hope you guys enjoy the main episode without further ado hit it editing connie i actually kind of want to flip the script a little and today i want to hear about masha's story how did you find your way to put one foot in front of the other when you felt lost and share with us how the sunday self really helped you get to where you are now. Oh my gosh. I haven't spoken about this in forever. I'm kind of excited. <laughs> you know, it's always interesting when I reflect on the story, it tends to be like a year between me really like going into it. And it's always funny every year you kind of see like a different layer of the story. Mm. So it's always like a fun experience for me to talk through it. But to start off, I have to be honest about where I was. So I was in a career that, you know, looked really great. It was exactly the career that I wanted. I chose it the first day of college. I'm like, this is it. This is what I'm going to do. It, everyone says it's like the best thing you can do. And so I did that and I kind of got everything I needed to. I passed all the exams. I got the internship. I got the job. I'm in the job. Everything theoretically should be great. But I was just, I had never been that miserable. I was just mm -hmm. like, this cannot be my life. Like I, this can't be my future. Everybody would be talking about their 401k or like when they want to retire. And I would look around and I'd be like, wait, you guys are like excited about that? <laughs> like, are you, are you serious? I would just feel so other because I'm like, I, you guys are excited. You're not lying, but this feels so incredibly wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I had this kind of like quarter life crisis at the same time I had actually gotten into a car accident, oh interestingly enough. I know so we got into this. this car accident. We were on our way to a party. I was in like the third row. I wasn't wearing a seatbelt because I was an idiot. And we basically at a, at a cross section got like T-boned. She was texting and she ran through the stop sign and she hit our car and our car flipped over twice, <gasps> like in midair, flipped twice and somehow miraculously landed back on the wheels and didn't hit any of the cars, any of the posts, nothing. But I like very clearly remember, it's such a strange feeling, but I so clearly remember as the car was flipping, I'm like, okay, this is it. Like, I'm going to die. Like, there's no way it's the car is flipping. Right. And then when it landed and I had a few days and I took a few days off of work, I just remember thinking of like, wow, if I had actually died, that's, this is what I'm doing with my life. Like mm. I could do more. And yet this is it. Like this would have been the legacy or like how I served people or how I showed up or who I was. And there's nothing wrong with the career of choice that I had. It was more so like, it was just so inauthentic. And I think that really freaked me out that the legacy that would have been left would have been so incredibly inauthentic. And so at that point, it was just a scary moment for me because I really didn't know what I liked. That sounds really crazy, but I was just so sure of this career that that was my only interest. Like my free time would be spent studying and, you know, just moving forward in that or like hanging out with friends. But I didn't have any interest, any hobbies, anything that I could in any way think could be a skill to turn into another career that wasn't this. Did you try convincing yourself though that this is like normal to feel that way? 
I think I did, but I, I think I did it less than other people do is kind of as I've reflected, because I think that first Mm. year, actually, let me take that back. I, now that you're making me think about it, I think I was convincing myself earlier than I realized, meaning now that I'm thinking Mm. back to it, even in the internship, which was like the dream internship, it came with so many cool perks. Everyone was so like in awe of it. I think if I was really honest with myself, something already felt off, but I convinced myself like, well, this is how everyone feels. You're just an intern. You're just new. Like things are hard. What do you expect? Right. It's like, and I remember always feeling other, but then also thinking, yeah, but you've always felt this way. Like I always feel this way. That's not an indicator of anything. That's just kind of like been the story of my life. So that's something to ignore. And so I totally ignore that, got the full-time job, was there at least a year and a half before I really had that happen, that car accident. And so I think in that year and a half, I didn't even allow myself to think that this could be wrong, even though I think there was a lot of kind of flashing lights, warning signs, like this isn't working for you. Like you don't feel seen, you don't feel excited. You don't feel like you could be authentic. You feel like you're faking it. You feel like you're other. And so to be honest, yeah, I think I convinced myself honestly, for just for so long that I didn't even realize that's what it was. Even in college, like never having allowed myself to explore any interest other than this career. In reality, that was probably me convincing myself too. So you go through this car accident, which is, oh my gosh, I can't believe you went through that. It When it happened, did you process it was happening or was it like it happened and then you were like, whoa, what just happened? Um, The only thing I remember is that like the spinning and slow motion and being like, oh, I'm going to die. And then that moment of like when the car landed and we're all fine, we're like, wait, we're all okay. And they're like, oh, okay, that I'm okay. And so then there was a hospital and everything and I was completely fine. I just like hurt my nose. Um, But it's the day after. I remember I took a day off of work and I think that's what it settled in. Like I remember my coworker Mm. sent me flowers and it was so sweet and so thoughtful. And again, just a sign of like what a great job it was and how wonderful all the people were there. And yet I still had that feeling of like something is off. And I think that's really when Mm. it hit me. And I think from there, it was probably another year, year and a half where in the first half a year, I'm like, no, you know, it's probably fine. And I would just kind of go in circles. I would have a lot of anxiety. I would talk to people about it, but like, I really wasn't willing to do anything. And then I think after like six months or so of just ruminating on it and going in circles and be like, well, I'm not happy in this. And like, kind of like criticizing everything. It kind of settled in. I'm like, okay, we'll I have to do something about this. Like I can keep complaining about it or I could start somewhere. And I think that's where Mm. my journey started. And to some degree, the idea of the Sunday self was born, although it was actually born a few years later, because just at that point, I remember thinking, okay, I can't change my career because I don't know what else I'm good at. Like, I got to be here. But how can I just make myself feel better? Because I'm really not feeling great. Like mentally and emotionally, I'm not feeling great. And even physically, I was starting to realize like I have some issues that I was kind of not realizing. And so I was just like, okay, let's start there and let's start physically. And what are small things I can do to start to physically feel better? And I, you know, like started looking into like, well, how can I eat a little better? Or the importance of hydration, like just such basic things that I was just like super not aware of. And so I got into that and I started running and exercising more in a healthy way, because I think before I would do it more so for weight loss. Now it's just trying to do it to feel good. Um, And so I started doing that more. And as I got into the physical health component, 
it started to become, wait, what about my mental health? Like what's going on there? How can I explore that world and learning about mindset and things like that? And then even starting to think about, wait, what makes me happy? Like what's working for me and what's not? And I think that thought started to creep in of like, what's working, what's not. And to realize this job, the way it's set up, what we're doing here, this career path, it's not working for me. It's not right for me. I'm not motivated. I don't feel like myself, like something is wrong and I just need to accept it. And there was a really difficult time where I had to acknowledge that this thing that like I made a part of my identity, I was going to have to give up. And I think that was really hard for me, this idea that I'm going to give up this career path because it was kind of one of those career paths you can't coast. You have to keep taking exams Mm. and you have to keep getting promoted or else you leave the program. And so it's like, if I wasn't actively studying and doing all this extra work, I can't be there. And so at that point I was like, okay, I need to leave. And that's when I changed jobs and I went into like a kind of a role that I could do because it's very analytical. And I was like, let me try a fashion company. I like fashion. Maybe if I do something analytical in a fashion company, that would be slightly better. And I do remember I, at the very least, had the understanding, I want more free time. I don't love that I'm always working, always studying. Like I need more free time. And so I got a job that was just like really nine to five, really like 10 to five. And that was awesome. And so I transitioned into there. And then once I got more space, I started kind of diving deeper into physical health, mental health, learning about it, like using my free time to still study because I was still a nerd. I'm just not studying math anymore. Um, That's really where the idea of the Sunday self was born, where I was like, okay, I have no idea what I want to do. I'm not any closer to what I want to do because I realized even fashion was still wrong. It was just as wrong as the other job, even though the people were even better and the schedule was even better. But I was starting to kind of get glimpses of how I want to feel and the kind of things that pique my curiosity, the kind of things that in my free time when I wasn't working, like what was I doing? And I found myself like researching things and looking into things. And so I just said, okay, what if instead of focusing, like, what do I want to do, which I'm not, I have no idea about. What if I just focus on how I want to feel and learning to cultivate that and doing that in small pockets, whether that be in my evenings or in my mornings or on the weekends, like on the weekends at the time, I only had one free day. It was Sunday because on Saturday I was actually tutoring. I tutored math since high school. So I had all these kids that I was tutoring. So I still worked on Saturday and I only had Sunday. And so Sunday was like my day of like, okay, I could try to live life the way I think I want to live life. Like, I don't know what I want to do, but I know how I want to feel and how I want to live and how I want to spend my time. And so I'm going to structure my Sundays to be that. And one day, one day a week, I'm going to live the way I want to live and embody the next version of myself and trust that maybe if I could embody this version of myself, it's going to guide me towards the clarity that I need around what I actually want to do. Mm, I really like your story because because of how realistic and how slow progressing it was because I feel like a lot of people if this was a movie it would be like car accident life changing the next day everything changed but I really like how you emphasize how it was actually like six months to like a year of that slow transition and then by the way I'm just gonna clarify this because you're spot on about this at that job the fashion job that was still not right for me but better I was there four years that's a really long time to be somewhere and like I just think people out there need to know like that's realistically what you're looking at so there's nothing wrong with you if you're feeling if you're still in that same spot but 
it's the mental changes that happen, like the inner changes that happen. And um, I also like in your story, though, how it's like the Sunday self because you only had that Sunday because a lot of the people listening right now might be like, well, I don't have the time. Well, do you have one day, one day where you can embody you know, the kind of change that, that you want to have. Yeah. And even like, if you you don't have one day, is it an hour? Do you have an hour in the morning? Can you wake mm-hmm. up one hour earlier? Do you have an afternoon? Right? Like I'm, it's so interesting how you picked up on that in my story. It's always interesting, right? When you tell a story, how someone perceives it and what they pick up on. And I think you picked up on something yeah. that over the years I've realized I did maybe very differently than other people and even differently than like how, how things work in my industry. And that is like, I'm a really big proponent Mm. of going very slow, but very intentionally to build a strong foundation. And it's interesting because I think I did that in my career. And then, then I learned about the nervous system and I realized that's exactly what we know is the best way for the nervous system. Because going that slowly created, kind of expanded my nervous system's capacity very gradually. And the more I did, the more new, scary, unknown things I did, it was being built on a strong foundation versus what a lot of people try to do is they try to change everything all at once or very, very quickly. Because Mm -hmm. let's be honest, that period of not knowing is incredibly uncomfortable. But when you change everything really quickly, your nervous system doesn't really have the capacity to hold all the uncertainty, all the new things. And that's when people crash. That's when people burn out. That's when people give up. Right. And so over the years, I've just seen that so much in other people that they tried to do too much too quickly. And then they quit and they're like, yeah, that never, that would never work. And it's like, I don't know if it would never work. I think it would work if you went slower. I think it worked if you went more intentionally Mm. and you really thought about what's working, what's not, do I feel safe to take the next step instead of just doing it all at once. When, when you were talking about this in your course, you mentioned something that I thought was really interesting that I hadn't heard anywhere else, which was that, um, you know, sometimes we feel this resistance to living the life that we want. And I think traditional self-help would call it limiting beliefs. I, I want you to talk a bit about why that's kind of an incorrect phrase and how that might like show up when we're trying to show up as our best self. But then I, I feel it now. I get my Thursdays off. And when I heard your Sunday self story, I was like, oh, I should treat my Thursdays this way. But I felt so much resistance, maybe because I was trying to move too fast, but I think because I have a lot of limiting beliefs about myself and my life. (laughs) Yeah. Oh my gosh. Great question. So the reason I don't love the term limiting beliefs, and like, let's just be honest, it's a really common term. And I think there's a lot of value to it. It's just the wording that I have a problem with. And the problem is that when you understand the nervous system, you realize they're not actually limiting. You understand that these beliefs are protective. You have developed these beliefs and actually developed whole systems of beliefs, like webs of beliefs that are all interconnected in order to keep yourself safe, right? So as you know, you were developing, as you went through your life, difficult things happened to you and you had to develop protective mechanisms in order to survive. And once those protective mechanisms developed in order to keep you safe, be it perfectionism, overachieving, people-pleasing, right? Those things, those are just some examples, are things you had to do in order to keep yourself safe and get your needs met as a child when there was no other options, right? But in order for your nervous system to continue these patterns, which it believes is the best course of action because it thinks, hey, if this happened to you once, it's going to happen again. So I need you to keep doing this Mm. over and over and over again, right? Let's say it's perfectionism. Let's say 
you develop perfectionism because you were feeling abandoned or rejected or like you weren't fitting in and you realized if you just do everything perfectly, you get validation and approval from people and it kind of keeps you away from the shame that you're actually feeling internally, right? And so your nervous system is like, okay, that worked. It kept you safe. You're alive. You survived. Difficult time in your life. So let's keep doing that over and over and over again. Okay, that makes sense. But in order for you to keep doing that over and over and over again, you need your beliefs to support this protective mechanism, right? Because that's ultimately what's going to keep it going. So your beliefs need to line up with that. They need to keep that protective mechanism in place. They need to convince you that this protective mechanism, in our example, perfectionism, is the best course of action. So it kind of like doubles down. Right. And then you develop beliefs like, well, if you're not overachieving, you're actually lazy and you're not detail oriented. No one's going to want you. And so you develop these like webs of beliefs that have to do with how other people see you, how you see you, family, like every area of life that permeate everything in order to keep that protective mechanism going. Because ultimately, our beliefs drive our thoughts and our thoughts drive our actions, which are often protective mechanisms. So in that way, you're beliefs are not limiting, they're regulating you. They're helping keep you stay safe in the ways that have worked in the past. So now that we know how important our beliefs are, though, can we go into the idea of like our conscious beliefs versus our subconscious and unconscious beliefs? Because I think what I've underestimated my whole like self-help journey and all of that is the role that the unconscious has and how I interpret my conscience. Yeah, And so it's kind of like plays into what we already said with these beliefs. So your beliefs are subconscious. You could understand your beliefs, but you only understand your beliefs by witnessing your thoughts. So your thoughts and your actions are conscious, right? Or your thoughts are kind of maybe in between, but your beliefs are subconscious. And so these subconscious beliefs are things that you didn't actively choose. They were programmed into you from a young age based on your family, your society, conditioning, and your trauma. Right. And so you develop these beliefs to keep the protective mechanisms in place, to keep you getting love and validation and getting your needs met from your parental figures. Right. So you develop all these beliefs. And then for the most part, they're just running an autopilot. So like 95, 90 to 95% of our, of what we do is, is subconscious. You're not actively choosing it. It's kind of like an autopilot right? There's a very small percentage that you consciously and actively choose. And that's on purpose. So to save you energy, you don't think about how to pick something up. You don't think about how to sit on a chair, right? You don't think about how to say hello, not always, like unless something you're getting really nervous, right? And so it's doing this on on purpose to save you energy. But ultimately, that means that your trauma and your conditioning and what happened in your past is determining how you see reality in this moment. It's like choosing your beliefs and thoughts. It's putting it through a filter is maybe a better way of saying it. I guess what I'm like more iffy on is what is the difference between sub versus unconscious? Yeah, that's a little bit like more nuanced. I feel like that makes it a little bit um, more confusing. The sub is a little bit closer to the surface, whereas the unconscious goes a lot deeper. So like deeper traumas. Um, Most people kind of use them interchangeably. There is a slight difference, but both are beneath our awareness. We are not consciously choosing these things. If you've ever seen, like a lot of times the imagery that's used as an iceberg, like the conscious is the tip of the iceberg and everything beneath the surface Mm -hmm. is the the subconscious closer to the top. And then the unconscious, like 
the depths of the ocean. So I guess the idea then is that because I think like the oh shit moment when I was like watching the course was um, every course I've ever seen, every book I've ever read about self-help has talked about the RAS system. For those of you that don't know, it's like the system in your brain that like, let's say you want to focus on buying like a red car someday. You you will start to see more and more red cars because your brain will process, oh, that's important to her. She wants to focus on that. We'll focus more on red cars. That's something that I feel like they, they teach in schools and stuff, right? But the thing that they don't teach and the thing that I really realize why this work is so important is that your unconscious beliefs will determine your attitude about like that red car, right? So yeah. that's kind of a whole nother layer because I'm like, why do I care about that red car? Is it the red car I actually care about? We think that it's so clear cut. We think it's like, I want the red car. That's what I'm going to tell my RAS system to look out for. But it's actually like, okay, there's something unconscious that's making me feel a certain way about this red car. Um, could you go into like kind of how our unconscious really shapes our RAS system and things like that? Yes. Well, and you said it perfectly. It's like that analogy you gave with the red car. It's like, yeah, you think you're consciously choosing. It's like, yes, I like red cars, right? And I want my RAS system to look for all the red cars, red cars, right? Fair. But mm-hmm. why do you like red cars? Is there an unconscious mm-hmm. belief about red cars? Is it that your dad really liked red cars. Is it that you like red cars or is it that your dad liked red cars and he liked when you liked what he liked? So you like red cars to get validation from other people. Yes. It's like, it's like, do I actually like red cars? Like, it's like, you could really spiral. You And you could really spiral. Like, that's the oddest truth. But that like feeling of spiraling, to be honest, is sometimes the unraveling. Because these belief systems that we have, mm-hmm. they're systems. It's not one belief. It's many beliefs fitting together because you can't have beliefs that are not coherent, not cohesive with each other, right? So all the beliefs need to be cohesive. So maybe you tend to be a perfectionist with your work. That's probably going to translate into certain beliefs about perfectionism in your personal life, right? Like there's whole systems of beliefs and they need to fit together. Now, the second you start unraveling them and questioning one belief, you're like pulling on a thread, the whole thing could fall ah. apart. And when the whole thing falls apart, it could actually be incredibly overwhelming because to some degree, like your sense of self is falling apart. You're like, wait, these beliefs, I thought this is who I am, right? I thought these beliefs make me who I am, but if they're not even mine or I don't even really believe them, then who am I? And that could feel like a really overwhelming feeling. And I think that's part of what makes a quarter life crisis or a midlife crisis so scary, at least like in my experience when I had that quarter life crisis, because I made my career and, you know, what I do and math and all these things, such a central part of my identity. And when I accepted that they weren't working for me anymore, that was really scary. I'm like, okay, well, if I don't like this, what do I like? And I don't actually know what I like. And did I ever like this? Like, why did I even choose this? And then you go down this rabbit hole and you're like, wait, who am I? Have I, was I myself? Was I, was that even me? And to some degree you realize it's not, it's almost this, um, this facade that we've built in order to keep ourselves safe and who we are is actually beneath that. Once we start pulling at those threads very gently one at a time and uncovering, wait, what's that? What's that? What do I like? What does make me happy? Right. But it does require that process of really starting to question your thoughts instead of taking them at face value. Because when we take them at face value, you're absolutely right. You think you're the creator of your life and you think that this is what you really want and you're making choices, but it's not because all your desires, everything was shaped to some degree 
by what happened in your past. And the danger is not being aware of how it shaped it or to the degree to which it shaped it, because you could be sure you're living your life when in reality you're not. And then you wake up 20 years later and you're like, wait, none of this makes me happy. And I don't understand why. And that's when you really recognize like, oh, because those really weren't my desires. They were just what I was conditioned to believe was the right thing or what I should want and so on. You talked about something though, that gave me a lot of hope for how we can better align ourselves. And that hope was something called disconfirming experiences, because I think that that's one way that you can kind of like show your nervous system and challenge what you believe and show your nervous system like, oh no, like what we what we want like is safe even if it doesn't feel safe could you explain a bit about that would you mind if i asked you a question first that we can use it as an example sure sure okay so you mentioned to me you kind of wanting to try the sunday self kind of uh method on your thursdays on Mm -hmm. your days off but you mentioned that there might be some limiting beliefs or some protective mechanisms some protective regulating beliefs that are getting in the way Could you tell me a little bit about Mm -hmm. that? Because then I wonder if we can use that to show what a disconfirming experience might be for you. And then I could use myself because I did obviously something very similar. Yeah. Okay, totally. So I think the biggest resistance on Thursdays is I always have these grand plans to film a lot of marketing for my podcast. Um, Recording episodes I love. My my pain point is really the marketing. And when it comes down to it, it's the social media. Um, I feel like I've been on this on social media long enough where like I really was comfortable the first few years when it was just pictures and words because those were my mediums of choice. I was very comfortable with it. Now with short form video. And it's weird because it's not necessarily the posting about my face, which is what I think most people are afraid of. They're, they're afraid to press hit. I'm not afraid of that. Because I'm used to the posting part. I feel the resistance to turning on the camera, to putting on the makeup. And I'm not exactly sure where that's coming from. I think it's some form of imposter syndrome of, I, of, I don't know, like just, just the act of the putting on the makeup and the tr- b- before I turn on the camera that gives me the anxiety. Once I record, I'm fine editing. I'm fine putting my face out there. I don't know what it is about the putting on the makeup and doing this recording thing. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, so can you tell me a little bit about what comes up for you in that moment when you're about to turn the camera on, one, and two, can you spot any quote-unquote limiting beliefs? And it's weird because it doesn't happen when I record the podcast episodes because I love just having the conversation. It's solely when I'm having to record like the marketing, like, well, I haven't really posted it because I haven't done it yet. It's, um, I want to post more videos of just me talking about my episodes, just like face to face, you know, on TikTok and things like that, or me doing professional, more kind of like, um, coaching type videos to the screen. Um, I think part of my hesitation is just, it's just... Thursdays are my one day off, right? So I'm usually in sweats. Well, I am in sweats right now. I'm in sweats and no makeup. And the thought of having to get enough energy to put on makeup and put on like maybe normal clothes just seems like so overwhelming that I don't want to do it at all. So then I just push it off to next Thursday. Okay. I have a question. This might be a dumb question and you can remove this if this feels dumb. Sure, sure. Is it true that you need to change your clothes and put on makeup in order to record the video? No, I'm glad you actually picked up on that because that's not. And I've asked myself that before. I'm like, well, what if you just record in your car on the way home from work? What if you just record from bed? 
And I think that's my hesitation is I feel like I have to have makeup on. I feel like I have to look pretty enough to be on social media. There's some of that. I totally, and like, to be honest, on a personal level, that was also like the, probably the most difficult part of my business. But can I just say like Mm. right there is the limiting belief, right? Like Mm. right in that conversation, we spotted the limiting belief. The limiting belief says I can't do it unless I look a certain way because it might lead to maybe judgment or it could lead to all of these things. It's dangerous. And so I want you to consider how that belief is protecting you. What do you think that belief is protecting you from? So we can kind of also give people an example of like, well, what's the difference between limiting and protective, right? How does the belief that you need to get dressed in the right way and you need to put on makeup in order to be received a certain way, how does that belief protect you? Not limit you. We obviously see how it limits you, but how does it protect you? I don't know. Maybe I think that that I'll just be better perceived, that I'll be more trustworthy if I look better, um, that... Yeah, I think, well, it kind of ties back to our previous episodes. So much of my thought process is I'm the little sister. Why would anyone listen to me? So I kind of think it's like, I need the street cred. So I need to look like a doctor. I need to look put together, look like someone inspirational. And so, and if you didn't do this, then what would happen? What's the fear? Say it in reverse. Like, what are you afraid would happen then? I think I'm afraid that then I wouldn't be like, creating anything of like meaning or that could help people because I just think that like I think my fear is that if my content if if I don't look good enough for it it doesn't seem impressive enough to people then they won't watch and then it won't my message won't be heard the message that I want other people to hear so then the con it's not that the content won't be as good it's that other people won't take it seriously or won't be able to receive the the important message that you have to give Yeah, it's, oh my gosh, yeah, you're so right. It's kind of like now that we're putting it together, it feels like, why bother saying my message if it's not wrapped up in a pretty bow because then no one will listen to it. Right. And what I mean, right, is like we're just hearing the protective mechanism or the protective belief or regulating belief is how I call it, saying, okay, if I do my hair and I do my makeup right and I dress up right, that's protecting me because it's protecting me maybe from being rejected, from people not taking me seriously, from this thing that I've actually been afraid of for a long time or have perceived to be true about me for a long time. And so it's trying to protect you in its own way. It's like, okay, well, you know, makeup and getting dressed up, that's what prevents that. So that's what it's protecting you from, right? And so it's like, we could just understand the fear is not being taken seriously. Maybe even rejection to some degree, do you think? Totally. Yeah, totally. And like, I feel like a lot of pressure to have to be inspirational. And like, part of it is thinking like, well, if I don't look inspirational, then like people won't think I'm inspirational. Interesting. Okay. So the fear is getting rejected, not taking, not being taken seriously. So what is it you really do desire? Like you said, inspiration. I want to be inspirational and inspire people. Is it being accepted? Is it being heard? You know, what's kind of confusing me though, is because this makes a lot of sense, but on my stories, I'm like always without makeup, you know, I'm always like in a towel, like I'm like really barefaced. <laughs> so my listeners right now are like, what are you talking about? Um, it's the posts on the feed, the stuff that lives there permanently. You know, it does. It kind of doesn't confuse me. And you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I think there's a difference on your stories. You're kind of like the fun little sister. That's 
the energy and that's what people relate to. And it's really great. And I think that's what you want for stories. But I think the kind of content you're talking about is showing up as an expert to some degree. It's a little bit of like older sister energy than younger sister energy. Yeah, that's true. And I don't know if the answer, I don't know if there is an answer, but I don't know if the answer is, well, show up more on your feed how you are, just little sister. And that in itself, in its authenticity, will be the inspiration. Or I don't know if the answer is, well, you're allowed to feel like you want that elevated content, but... So let me kind of like connect this to the work of there's a limiting belief or we're going to call it the right way. We're going to call it a regulating belief. There's a regulating (laughs) belief that based on your past and your trauma doesn't want you to feel rejected, doesn't want you to not kind of be, it doesn't want you to be ignored or not taken seriously. Right. And so it's trying to do like what it thinks is the right way to do that is like kind of present this facade of being really put together. Maybe that's what you observed in other people. Maybe that's what you had to do in the past, right? And so that's the protective mechanism. That's the regulating belief. Now, just by definition, if it's regulating you and protecting you, it's probably not 100% true. Like there's probably some truth to it based on your past. Maybe in the past things have happened that have made you believe that the way you dress or how you do your makeup will make people take you more seriously. But I'm not sure you could tell me right now that that's 100% true. That people won't take you as seriously, won't respect you as much if you're not wearing makeup or dressed up. That's definitely not 100% true. But here's where my conscience is struggling is I'm like, but I look so bad without makeup. <laughs> like, I know this is so like shallow, but I'm like showing up without makeup. <laughs> And, and again, now we're touching on another probably protective mechanism, right? It's like, maybe there's a, there's a belief that, you know, again, I'll be rejected or I won't be liked, or there's Mm. something wrong with me or I'll be judged. Right. And so the belief is, oh, you must wear makeup. That's how you have to present yourself. Now I'm not saying there's anything wrong with makeup. Like that's really not what we're talking about. There's nothing wrong with any of it. What we're trying, what we're trying yeah. to spot is the things that are holding you back from taking the actions that you know are actually meaningful. So you know actually sharing this content with other people is meaningful. I think you and I agree that if you shared it, it would help people, right? That's what we could agree across the board is true. These beliefs are stopping you. They're slowing you down. They're preventing you from taking action. And you understand the impact of compounding interest. Like there's probably compounding stuff happening here week after week, if that keeps happening, like, you know, ultimately that is holding you back. Right. And so as long as we can see, wait, this thing is holding me back to some degree. Like, even if you posted super imperfectly, I think you and I would agree it would still be better than not posting. Right. Totally. We agree on that. Mm -hmm. And so what that points to is like, okay, this is a limiting belief. This is actually limiting me and preventing me from serving in the way that I want to serve. Meaning this belief is not serving me. It does not align with my goals. It does not align with my future. I need to crack it open. I need to break it because otherwise it will keep getting stronger and stronger and stronger. So every single time, hear me out, every single time you don't let yourself post unless you're dressed up and have makeup or you put it off, you're reconfirming Mm. that belief. You're like, yep, that's true. They won't take you seriously. That's why we didn't post. Right. And so you're making that belief stronger and stronger and intensifying it. 
right? Meaning, you know, at some point it might feel like, wow, well, if I must have the perfect background, then that won't, it's going to keep building in its power because you're giving it more ammo, basically. And so what that means is we need to break it. And that's where disconfirming experiences come in, that this isn't about what would actually be more effective. I would want you to be able to play around with, does makeup or no makeup do better? But you'd have to like test things out to find that out. We're not just going based on like our assumptions based on our childhood or upbringing Mm. or society, right? And so in order to even be able to experiment, you need to be able to start doing it. So we need to break that belief. And so I would want you to start posting without your hair and makeup and clothing being perfect to some degree, doing something just to start breaking that belief. So every time you did it, let's say tomorrow, you're like, okay, I'm just going to give this a shot. And you decide to post and like, maybe you dress up a little more than usual, but like just a nice sweatshirt or you like do a tiny bit of makeup, but not as much. You're like, okay, I'm still going to do it. I'd want to do more, but I'm just going to do it for the sake of doing it. What you're doing after you post to giving your nervous system a disconfirming experience, you're saying, hey, we expected that if we posted a video without being perfect, that no one would ever like it, that we'd be rejected, that there would be all these negative emotions But when you post, you're actually showing yourself, wait, I'm still alive. Like I'm still breathing. I'm (laughs) good. The internet has not turned on me. They have not canceled me. Even if this didn't perform amazingly, who cares? I just showed myself that I can do it and I could face the consequences. Meaning you might have a negative emotion, but if you show yourself you could handle that negative emotion, there's really nothing to be afraid of. It's like, okay, well, I handled it. Then I figure out the next video, right? And you kind of are able to just keep going. So that would be a disconfirming experience, showing your nervous system that what expects would happen didn't happen. And if you do that time and time again, you're building a bank of proof, right? You're giving your nervous Mm. system evidence of the contrary. Right now, your nervous system might have a lot of evidence that your belief is true, that you have to look perfect, that you shouldn't do it if you don't look perfect. Maybe you you know, you haven't posted a video ever where you didn't do this. So your nervous system's like, yeah, that's dangerous. She's never even done it. It's so dangerous. But now as you start doing it, you're kind of building up a bank of proof that says, no, this is actually okay. So next time you come back to it, your nervous system's like, wait, we have proof that last time we didn't die because that's what your nervous system cares about. Mm. It thinks you're going to die. Right. And so you're building up that bank of proof. And in doing that, you're breaking that belief. Now, Once you break that belief, it's not about you only have to post without wearing makeup and and cute, like you only have to post without makeup and in sweats, like that's your new go-to. Absolutely not. You could post however you want. I just wouldn't want that belief making your business decisions for you because it's not a hundred percent true. And it is ultimately still holding you back from taking the actions you say are the key to your business. You know, as we're talking about this, I think there's another layer to this because this is kind of related to like social media. Um, I So a couple of years ago when Reels was becoming popular, um, I started posting this like kind of comedy content that like did really well on the Reels. And that's when like I got a really big boost in following actually. Um, and I remember just being like really part of me was really happy because I was like, cool, this is what I always wanted. Like it's it's happening. The big thing's happening. And then I remember kind of like feeling like less and less safe about it. In the beginning, I was like ecstatic. I was like, cool, this is like what I worked so hard for. And then the more it happened, the more I felt resistance to posting that kind of stuff. And then it kind of like hit a peak where one of my followers, they weren't trying to be malicious or anything. 
Um, but I think they said something that I interpreted. I don't even remember what they said, but I interpreted it as them saying like, I'm, I'm happy for all the success you're having, but I miss like your old content. They said something like that. I don't exactly remember like what they said, but I remember reading that message and that being my greatest fear because as I was posting this stuff, I kind of felt like I was selling out. I was like, these silly videos, yeah, they get lots of laughs and like likes and whatever, but it feels kind of like shallow and just not really like fulfilling to me. Um, so then there was that resistance, but I don't know if that's just the belief that I was scared of the views and stuff. So I was telling myself that. And then the cherry on top was like, you know, my follower telling me that. And then that's when I kind of hard stopped posting that kind of stuff. Cause I was like, I like, she confirmed everything. I thought I'm not being authentic. They can tell I'm a phony. I'm going to stop posting that kind of stuff. And that's kind of the last time I've really had like a lot of social media growth. Um, but I'm wondering if there's something there about that (laughs) I'm so glad you said this and again do you see how like as we're talking you could start to like you pull up one thread and suddenly you see another limiting belief or like another belief you're like wait is that true maybe that came from here right and you start kind of like pulling it apart and I think there's something very important remember how I asked like how is this protecting you and it sounds Mm. like there might be more to that piece of it sounds like as you grew you started feeling a little unsafe, which is so understandable. Like social media is so unnatural to like suddenly have mm-hmm. so many people viewing you and judging you anonymously and being able to say whatever, even though they're not really in your house, but your nervous system can't tell. It feels like there's just people screaming at you in your house, right? It's just very unnatural yeah. and dysregulating. And so a lot of the times our regulating beliefs are actually trying to keep us from putting ourselves out there because maybe it doesn't feel safe to get a lot of people. Like it might be that to some degree, you almost know if you started doing this all the time, you might get more attention and that attention might come with more criticism and which might bring up self doubt and a lot of emotions that you don't want to feel. And so these regulating beliefs might almost be an attempt to keep you safe. I think that's like absolutely what it is. And like, it's interesting though, because like, I kind of like, know that looking back after it's been a couple of years I always look back on that moment and I'm kind of mad at myself because I'm like what if I just pushed through that what if I didn't let this limiting belief affect me where would I be now I know it's fruitless to be mad at yourself in the past but I still have that feeling you know that makes sense right like to to struggle with that to doubt ourselves but I also want you to consider if at the time you didn't really have the tools to create the safety that you needed. That's the thing about regulating beliefs. Mm. They're not evil. They're actually meeting a need that there's no other way of meeting. So Mm. sometimes, for example, perfectionism, uh, there's a lot of limiting beliefs perfectionism can create. Well, perfectionism protects us from shame. And if you don't have the capacity to deal with the emotion of shame, then the, the regulating beliefs that say you have to do this perfectly they're the best bet you got, right? Like they're the best tool you have in your in your toolkit because if you felt all that shame, you might be completely overwhelmed. You might go into a depression. You might just, you might feel really dark and heavy and you might not have the capacity to hold that. So I invite you to consider if there's a chance that at the time you didn't have a better tool for creating that safety. And so maybe hmm. pulling back was the best tool to keep yourself safe and to be able to keep going because I know At the time, you also had so many other things happening. It's not like this was your only thing. Mm. And so I wonder if that was kind of calculation your nervous system did of like, yeah, we're going to pull away from this because we need the safety to do all these other things. 
that are really important and we don't want to drop the ball on. That makes a lot of sense because it's actually all coincided with the same time I started clinic and dental school. So I think what what wasn't making sense to me before was I'm like, well, in the beginning, I loved the success. like, But then slowly as I did more, that's where I felt less unsafe. I wonder if it's because as time passed, you know, I felt more and more unsafe with school and clinic and all of that. So then my nervous system was like, all right, we have to make a choice and we're choosing school, feeling safe. And there. like what you said about those comments, you know, like they were starting to really make mm-hmm. you question yourself. And maybe at the time, like I, you know, I worked a lot of dentists, like I tend to see when I'm working with dental students, like clinic tends to be a really difficult and triggering time. Like you're really thrown into yeah. it. <laughs> and so there might be a time yeah. where you're already feeling some kind of way about yourself, feeling some shame and doubt and not feeling great about yourself. And then to be doing that on social media as well, your nervous system, like this is too much. We need somewhere to feel good about ourselves and we don't want to be doing it on both fronts previously in another episode we talked about how like we talked about the emotional spiral the 90 seconds of it all and all of that but something I picked up on when you were when I was watching the the videos in the courses is how emotions can still be a tool how do we use our emotions as catalysts and as tools when shame is just such a horrible emotion to feel or any emotion I'm just using shame because we were just talking yeah and okay here's the thing with using emotions as tools I think what people get wrong about emotions is they misunderstand what it means to feel your emotions. I think a lot of people think that like mm. in the moment where you're feeling intense anger and rage, like that is you feeling your emotions and maybe taking it out on healthy ways. And you're like, well, that's not good. Like that's, I don't want to be like that. Right. And I, so I understand why people kind of, when you hear that statement, you're like, nah, I don't know about this. But when I say using your emotions as a catalyst, I actually mean feeling your emotions, processing them. And then once you move through that on the other end, you actually get clarity. So you can think of your emotion as a tunnel, right? And to move Mm -hmm. through an emotion, you got to go through the tunnel and you go in there and it's really dark. And most people kind of just sit down. They're like, I'm not going. I don't want to go anymore. And so they're just Mm -hmm. sit in the emotion in the darkness, right? Or they try to run the other way. When in the reality is you have to move through the tunnel. You have to keep walking through the darkness keep feeling it, keep processing because emotions are sensations in the body and then come out on the other end. Once you see the light, that's when you can alchemize that emotion, right? That's when you could really understand what wisdom was that emotion bringing? What was it offering to me? What was it saying to me so that now I could direct it or channel it in a productive way, right? So for example, like with anger, something might happen and you might feel intense anger anger, and you might want to hit something and you might want to yell and scream. And so instead of taking out on someone else, I would actually encourage you to feel and process it in your body, maybe by moving, jumping, shaking, crying, like allow yourself to feel it. And once you come out of that, you can use that anger. Anger is actually a way of mobilizing you. It's a way of taking action when there's injustice. And so on the other end of that, you can then go, okay, my anger was pointing me. Something is not right. Do I need to go set a boundary? Do I need to go speak up? Do I need to go take some kind of action to correct the injustice that was happening that was making me so angry? But we need to feel that emotion and process it before we could do something useful with it and channel it into something productive. That makes sense. So you're not saying like, oh, you can use this anger as a tool to work faster and harder. You're saying like you will be a more enlightened and knowledgeable person about yourself if you allow yourself, like you will come out on the other end of this anger 
um, with a better understanding. Exactly, because your emotions are very intelligent in a way, but they're also very primitive. So like in the moment, yes, you need to pause and actually process them because you don't actually need to go fight the tiger, right? But if you could feel those emotions, allow them to move through you and clear out on the other end, you're going to have clarity. You're going to have like that wisdom of your body. It was trying to communicate something to you. Maybe something about your needs not being met, maybe about your desires. And now you can use that wisdom to help you move forward. And like, I could even Mm -hmm. use your example of like shame to go back and kind of like bring it full circle is you're kind of saying that one of the things that you know, made you stop and maybe even makes you so hesitant to like make these videos now is it didn't feel safe. And there was maybe some shame coming up, maybe from the comments that were being made, maybe how you were feeling about yourself. And so you protected yourself from that shame, from that shame by not maybe showing up as much in social media. And now that protective mechanism is still here by holding you back and putting all these restrictions on how you have to show up, which ultimately leads to you not showing up maybe as much as you would like to right now if we could understand that shame and process it and feel it we could then start to think about wait how do i give myself a new experience how do i show myself that that wasn't true right that i actually could be safe on social media that um, i'm not going to be rejected i don't know about other people but i'm not going to reject myself right that i could could be myself and and feel good about it right And that's where the disconfirming experience comes in of like, I'm not so concerned about you posting on social without makeup and, you know, in in sweats, because I think that's necessarily the best for your business. I'm concerned because I want you to show yourself that if you do that, you could still feel good about yourself. You could still feel safe. You have the tools now to do that for yourself. And there's a really good chance that that is going to be much more inspiring. Because if you think about it, that's inspiring to you, right? To see that like, oh, I don't have to be all these things in order for people to like me, to accept me, to learn from Mm. me, right? So then you're using that shame, which is initially holding you back as the catalyst for why it is so important that you post on your social without looking perfect. And now that's a healing experience Mm. for you. And there's a really good shot that that's also going to be really powerful for your business because you are showing up more authentically. And that we know that to be true about social media and I think life in general, authenticity is in many ways the key, even though it's really hard. Yeah. I I have a kind of like silly question. Um, we keep we keep using the phrase cultivate, right? And in the last episode, we talked about how to feel your emotions, but on one of your slides, it was like cultivating the emotion. What does like cultivating an emotion actually mean though? Because I feel like I just wrapped my head around what feeling an emotion is. I'm like, but what does cultivating it really mean? Yeah, that's a great question. And so when I say cultivating an emotion, we were talking about cultivating positive emotions because emotions are really powerful, right? When you take an emotion and you add it to a belief or a thought, it really amplifies it. It, it accelerates it. Right. So you can use emotions to accelerate your growth. If you think if you're into manifestation work, that is a huge part of manifestation work, learning to feel emotions and use that to kind of push you towards your goals and towards creating a different life and existence. And so we're talking about cultivating emotions that feel good to you. So first and foremost, right, we're cultivating emotions that feel really, really good to you. And what that looks like 
maybe this sounds really simple, but it's thinking about what are the things that make me feel the way I want to feel and how do I start doing them? And how do I start bringing them in? So you might think about what's a goal that I'm working towards. So for example, um, with posting, right? You might think about how do I want to feel when I post? Like what, what is that emotion that I want to feel? And then thinking about, okay, what kind of things make me feel that way now? And what kind of actions can I take to cultivate that emotion, right? It might be, I want to feel really grateful. I want to feel really confident. I want to feel really joyful, right? And so thinking about what practices can you do daily or weekly to cultivate that emotion? It might be listening to certain kinds of music and dancing. It might be different types of meditation when you cultivate emotions. It might be gratitude journaling, right? It's thinking about how do I cultivate that? It might be for some people exercise, right? They feel certain emotions afterwards. And so that kind of helps them feel that. And then I will tell them, okay, take that new belief that you want to have and now combine that with the feeling. Mm. And so when you combine those two, that's very different. Like affirmations on their own don't work that great. But if you can combine an affirmation with an emotion, that's powerful. So if you are after a workout and you feel super confident and you feel sexy and you feel like you could take the world and you feel super strong, and then you bring in an affirmation about being strong and confident, that accelerates it. That makes it so much more powerful. If you're saying the affirmation of how strong and confident you are, when you're feeling really crappy about yourself, that doesn't do anything. It feels like you're lying to yourself, in fact. Mm. Oh, I love that. That's like what we talked about on like our first episode together was how like you kind of gaslight yourself if that affirmation is not rooted in the belief. And I guess like part of that is not just the belief, it's the emotion that you have with it. Exactly. Um, so speaking of emotions, literally yesterday, someone was in the chair crying because um, I had to give some bad news, right? And I felt like horrible about it. I feel like as providers, like we're witnesses of so many emotions, happiness, sadness. If I could be much more confident in managing emotions, that would like really help me. But I know to some degree, there's very little I can do. Is there some way that I can, knowing this, be a better provider for my patients in those times of the negative emotions? Like, how can I comfort them better? How can I help them channel their emotions to empower them? Like, if only I could make flossing emotional, that would then I'd be the world's best dentist. <laughs> that is so true. Uh, so let's kind of like break it up into two, into two pieces, because I think the first part is is the much heavier part of you do witness so many difficult emotions, so much fear, so much grief, right? There are just so many difficult, painful emotions, pain that you witness. And Mm -hmm. I think you're saying like, how do I do a better job at holding that? And I will say like, even you getting better at feeling your own emotions and not being afraid of your emotions Mm -hmm. will help you do that better. A lot of the times, like if you've ever been with someone when you were grieving or going through something hard And they didn't do like a great job of holding space for you. They kind of made you feel uncomfortable as you were grieving. It's not because they didn't want to. That person probably loves you and cares about you deeply. It's often because they don't know how to feel that emotion. And when they see it in you, they get scared because it scares them in themselves. So seeing you, they're like, oh my God, Mm. I, I don't know what to do with this. And so they try to maybe make a joke or, you know, don't think about it. It'll all be okay. Or say some like nonsense like that right? Because they don't know how to handle it. It's not a reflection on how they feel about you. It's a reflection of how they are with their own emotions. So that's one. The better you get at being able to hold and process painful emotions within yourself, the better you'll be at doing it for them. And number two, I would say is 
getting good at, I think this is just very counterintuitive for people. I've spoken to clients about this. I've spoken to a partner about this. In those moments, we think we need to make them feel better. But actually what they need in those moments is someone just to hold space for them, just to be with them in that darkness, right? And that could just look like as simple things as like mirroring to them of like, I see this is really hard for you, right? You don't necessarily say like, it's going to be okay, or it's going to be better, right? Like at first, just allow them to feel what they're feeling and acknowledge what they're feeling. And that looks like mirroring. I'm like, yeah, this seems like it's really hard for you. I could tell this is really painful. We could take a moment instead of making them feel like they should rush through it or like they're making you feel uncomfortable or like you're trying to convince them out of an emotion that they are in fact feeling and is valid. And so I think that's a really important tip that I don't, I don't think a lot of people really understand. And I don't think a lot of people are very good at. And it's really interesting when you could hold space for people in that way, when they don't feel judged, they don't feel rushed, they feel validated. Yeah, they'll feel an emotion. They might cry that, but you'll notice after a little bit, they start to almost calm down because you're holding space for them. They don't feel like they have to worry necessarily about you and they don't necessarily feel like they're being kind of like rushed through it. So like that validation is really important. And then you could also, of course, offer like, hey, we could take a moment, like again, validating that it's okay to feel that emotion instead of making them feel shame about feeling that emotion. Like we could take a moment, we could take a breath together. I know this is hard, you know, and I think that's also really powerful. And then if you feel comfortable, you could bring in a regulating tool of like, hey, would you like to take a few deep breaths together? I know this is really hard. After you've validated them and you've kind of given them the space, maybe helping them kind of just regulate in that moment or asking them if there's something you could do. Hey, is there something you need in this moment to feel a little safer? That is like so powerful. I'm so glad that you said that because that is so counterintuitive to what we're taught in school. We're taught in school, like lead the conversation, steer the ship, keep your like um, checkups short. And what happened in my appointment yesterday is this was all in a checkup. What was a checkup? I had to deliver a lot of bad news, of course. And, um, and that just looking back, like that's probably like what would be best is to give them that space. But it's just so counterintuitive when you're on the clock and like the metrics of healthcare, all of that, like we're not, we're, we as humans are programmed to do that, but our schooling system, our healthcare system is not giving like providers and patients the space to feel like they can do that. 100%. And I think that's a major problem. And I could see how heavy that is on providers. Like I talk to nurses, doctors, dentists Mm. about this all the time that you guys are bearing the weight of that, right? Because you don't have the space to cultivate the safety that's necessary And then you carry the weight of that. And then you carry all those emotions and you guys take them home. And so I think it's, it's really difficult, but I think the people who recognize this work and like the need for this are really like paving the way for a different future. And I really believe it would also have way better outcomes because safety is so important for our nervous systems to feel safe. And when our nervous systems feel safe, our bodies can function properly. So if that person is in a state of fear and anxiety all the time, their immune system doesn't work properly. Like nothing works properly. And so that can't not impact their healing. It can't to some degree, you know? So I just think it's better for everyone. It would be better for the providers if they had that space. They didn't have to like carry the weight of making someone feel unsafe. It would be better for the patients because they would have better results and they would have way less fear and anxiety. But I know it's so hard to do in in our healthcare system. 
Yeah, I think even just it begins with just conversations like this and pointing out that that's an option because like that's not an option that they tell you about, you know, or that's not an option that feels intuitive. But just, you know, for anyone that's listening, like that silence and that space and that holding space for that other person could be something like so powerful. So powerful. Um, it could be really healing. Like I've heard people share that with me. Like yeah. They had a healthcare provider or a dentist who did something small like that and it changed how they felt about it. They start going to the doctor more, the dentist more, you know, it's, it's really powerful. You could have a really big ripple effect. Yeah. I feel like I have a really powerful new like tool in my toolbox that I'm like excited to try like starting tomorrow at work. I will say you asked me another part to the, to the question that I didn't answer. You were saying like, if I could make flossing fun, um, I do think there's something to be said for thinking about, okay, how do we cultivate positive emotions and connect them to things that are typically really hard? to kind of create new associations. So like with flossing, mm. I think it's a little harder because the person would need to do this, but it might be of like thinking about like habit stacking of like taking something that does make them feel joyful or happy and connecting it with that habit that maybe isn't like super fun, right? Like combining those two habits or even I think practitioners and doctors and dentists who are trying to make, you know, their offices feel a little bit lighter, a little bit more joyful, that is called using emotion, right? Like the colors of the walls, whether there's flesh, fresh flowers, like those things do elicit emotions in the person and they help because they are helping their nervous system feel safe, right? Your nervous system is always looking for cues of safety. And so those little things also make, make a difference and how we make them feel makes a big difference as well. Mm, that makes so much sense oh my gosh I'm so excited to like recommend this to my patients because this feels like really tangible and something that I can that I can bring to them even if they don't always do it that's just something that'll switch a flip in in their mind about how they approach things like flossing and brushing and things like that totally totally and even like if they have anxiety coming to you might be like having a playlist or just like thinking about those things a little bit more intentionally oh my gosh that's such a good idea because I already like play like fun music in my room all the time um but I usually start off the appointment by asking like, all right, what playlist do you want today? So like just, but like thinking that we could make it like a tradition. That's, that's a good idea. I love that. And can I just say, I think it's really cool that you ask what kind of playlist because another key component of feeling safe is agency. And a lot of times I think in the hmm. dentist's office or in a doctor's office, we feel like our agency is taken away. We're kind of just like do what you're told. And so those little choice points could be really powerful in giving the person a sense of control. Oh, I love that. And I think at the dentist's office, like that's one of the places where they feel the most like not in control. Like their mouth is open. They can't see anything I'm doing. They can't feel anything I'm doing, but they're awake. Like it's kind of the worst combination of things. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much. This episode was so awesome. And just another great one in the books. I'm so excited. If you could just leave with anyone new here where they can find you and where they can work with you. Yes, you guys can find me at MashaK.com. That's my website, K as in K-A-Y, Masha as in M-A-S-H-A. And you could find me on Instagram, same Masha K K A Y. And if you're interested in working with me, we could book a one-off session or I have a new round of my group program launching February 1st. It launches every three months. And so there's still openings there. And you can find more about that on, on my Instagram and website. Awesome. Thank you so much, Masha. Thank you so much for everyone for listening. And we'll see you guys next time. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah.